Greetings, Livingstone Church. This is Pastor Josh. I want to briefly address the question that we are all asking about when we will be able to gather again in person for corporate worship. By the time you hear this, you should have received an email from me with some of these details. And I'm recording this on Friday evening. Uh, I talked this afternoon with Pastor Eric from Portico and got the full rundown of their plans. Uh, Due to us sharing a building, this is going to be a joint effort and a work in progress. They are very understanding of our needs and willing to work with us. And I ask that we would prayerfully consider how we can show gratitude to them for their hospitality and that we all be patient in the coming months. As I'm sure you are all anticipating, this is not just going to be a flip the switch and everything is back to normal type of thing. As I will mention in the email, please feel free uh, to email or call me about any thoughts or concerns that you have as we plan to meet again. Things will be different for a while as we try to navigate what it looks like to get back to some sense of normal again after two pretty crazy months. And I will be trying to reach out to as many of you as I can in the coming weeks to talk through things and answer any questions that you might have. Our provisional session, which is the elders from several churches in our presbytery who make up our current elder team, uh, we will be meeting this coming week on Wednesday to talk through more details. Uh, They represent three other churches who will probably have three different approaches in some areas, Uh, so please pray for wisdom for us as we talk and pray and plan for regathering. In terms of dates... Portico is planning to meet on May 31st for the first time, so we will tentatively plan for that same date, and I will be sending out a much more detailed email later next week, and we will get some information up on our website and on our Facebook page. In the meantime, thank you for your patience. I miss you all dearly and can't wait to be able to see you again face-to-face. Peace and God bless. Let's begin our time of worship with a call and response reading from Psalm 145, verses 10 through 21. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. 
our triune God, you are king over all. You have shown us your goodness and your glory through all your mighty works, your work of creation, your work of upholding all that you have made, and your mighty works of redemption. You also display your goodness in your faithfulness to keep all your promises. And even now we rest knowing that not one of your words will fail. Father, there is no true hope to be found apart from you. So draw us to yourself as we worship. Help us to take our eyes off of the worthless things that are around us and place them firmly on you, our only true hope and our only strong king. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. i 
we confess with our lips that Jesus is king, how often do we allow sin to be our master, rejecting Jesus' reign? And really, that's what all sin is, a rebellion against our great and our good king, foolishly believing that our way is better than his. So let's confess our rebellion this morning. Righteous God, you have crowned Jesus Christ as Lord of all. And you say in your word that on the last day, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Yet we confess that we have not bowed before him and are slow to acknowledge his rule. Instead, we bow down and worship the idols of our hearts. We give allegiance to the powers of this world and fail to be governed by justice and love. We are rebellious subjects, ignoring the rule of our great king and running from his mercy and grace. Merciful King, hear us now as we make honest confession to you. God of kindness and mercy and fountain of every grace. In your mercy, forgive us. Raise us to acclaim Jesus as ruler of all, that we may be loyal ambassadors, obeying the commands of our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. Hear the words of assurance and confidence that God has given us in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meditate on these words. This is our hope. If you are in Christ, if you have turned from your sins and trusted in Christ, then there is no condemnation for you. We can often believe that even when we confess our sins, that God is just sitting up in heaven angry at us and constantly disappointed in us. But if we are united to Christ, then his perfect righteousness is ours, and his bearing the wrath of God on the cross is ours. And since that is true, there is truly no condemnation. There's no wrath left to be carried on your shoulders. And this is our assurance. This is our peace. So let's respond as we should with songs of praise and thanksgiving. Look on 
Never be removed. 
studying history, and I know that some of you do too. I'm not as good at it as some of you are, and I know some of you can remember lots of dates and names and events, and if I handed you a timeline right now, you could run circles around me and filling it out, especially my own kids. I've shared before that their timeline song that they do for their classical conversations, uh, homeschool education, is it's really fun to listen to. They basically... Learned, they learn to memorize uh, many of the major events and dates and people that have impacted world history. The thing that fascinates me about history, uh, just as I am fascinated with philosophy, though not very good at that either, is how history often repeats itself. Or in regards to philosophy, we might say that there are not really any new ideas. So whether it's history or philosophy, we might Use the phrase from Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. Now with history, of course, there are new things happening all the time. But the flow of history, while certainly linear in a sense and moving toward a definite end, the flow is very repetitive or predictable in many senses. And this is the thing that fascinates me, especially at the macro level. I like looking at things from the 30,000 foot view. I like thinking in terms of big chunks of time. One of the things that we can see from that view is the rise and the fall of kingdoms. It's pretty hard to read through the Old Testament or to understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament without understanding this flow of history, especially as it relates to the people of God. Just think about it for a minute. God created the world filled it with 
mountains and rivers and trees and birds and all types of animals. Then he created humans and he gave them dominion over all of it. That's kingdom language there. Dominion or rule is used throughout the Old Testament to speak of the rule of God and to speak of the rule of earthly kings. But it doesn't take long for rebellion to enter into the story. The serpent deceives the king and queen and overthrows the kingdom that had been granted to them. And now there will be a battle for the hearts and souls of all of their descendants. Things are looking pretty bleak until God calls a man named Abram out of the darkness of pagan worship and promises to bless him and his descendants with the promise that kings should come from his offspring. Now this seems crazy because he is an old, childless man with no land of his own. But God graciously and miraculously provides for his people, and despite their wandering and rebellion, finally provides them with an earthly king who is a man after God's own heart in David. The kingdom seems to be well established, and the people experience victory over their enemies, and a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity under David's son, Solomon. But all is not well. The new king does not walk wholeheartedly after God, but turns away from the Lord and goes after false gods. The Lord confronts Solomon and tells him that he will tear the kingdom from him. We read about this in 1 Kings 11.14. It says that the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. Now, this is not an insignificant detail that this adversary was an Edomite. This means that he is a descendant of Esau, Jacob's brother. Jacob equals Israel. And the children of Israel have essentially been battling their cousins, the Edomites, often on throughout their history. We'll actually see some interesting evidence of this in our passage today. Well, what am I trying to get at here? I'm glad you asked. That brief 30,000 foot flyover of Old Testament history paints a pretty ugly picture in a lot of ways. It's a picture of rebellion, of jockeying for power, of misplaced hopes and dreams, and of many questions left unanswered. We covered this early in the first couple chapters of Luke. By the time of Jesus' birth, things were very dark for the people of God. There had been no prophetic word for 400 years. There were many unfulfilled promises about the future restoration and glory of Israel and Judah including an incredible promise in Ezekiel 37 that God would reunite the tribes into one kingdom, that he would save them from their backsliding, and that he would be their God and they would be his people. God even says that his servant David shall be king over them, and that they shall all have one shepherd. This is an incredible promise. But at the time of Jesus' birth, this is still unrealized. There is still a great void, an unfulfilled longing among the people of God. And we ought to feel the weight of this longing. Though we have experienced the deliverance from sin and death won for us by King Jesus, 
there is still an unfulfilled aspect that we face as well. There is a longing for a future hope where sin and death are done away with for good. But in the meantime, we live in this world and we experience the collision of kingdoms. The main question that we're going to seek to answer today is, how does the kingdom of God advance against the kingdom of darkness and the kingdoms of this world? And we will see how Jesus confronts these kingdom, these kingdoms, how he sends his followers out to confront them, and how they respond. And we will see how Jesus' life and ministry pointed his closest followers and all others whom he encountered forward to a future promise of his reign over all his eternal kingdom. So brothers and sisters, friends, let us hear and pay attention to God's holy and inspired word as we read Luke 9, 1 through 17. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would feed us this morning, that you would satisfy us with your word. God, that you would cause us 
to hear from you, to receive what you have for us today. Father, speak for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if you're following along with the outline in the worship guide, you'll see the three parts of our outline. The good news of the kingdom of God confronts a broken world. The good news of the kingdom of God confronts those in the highest places. The good news of the kingdom of God confronts those in the lowest places. First, the good news of the kingdom of God confronts a broken world. And how do we see that? Up to this point, Jesus has been traveling around Galilee, displaying his power and authority, healing sick people, casting out demons, raising people from the dead, providing miraculous catches of fish, and calming storms. And remember that at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was preaching in a synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. It was there in chapter 4 that he stood up and read from Isaiah 61. And he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a massively important moment in Jesus' ministry. One that we said earlier was a paradigm or a framework for Jesus' entire ministry. This is the blueprint, if you will. He has come to fulfill this prophecy of Isaiah's, which he made clear by telling them that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Since the middle of chapter 4 then, we've seen Jesus on mission fulfilling these promises. But what's interesting is that so far, up to this point, he has done it alone. It has been a one-man show. And even though he called disciples to follow after him, we're still not sure how involved they are going to be in this mission. But that's all about to change here in chapter 9. After saving their doubting behinds from the storm... Then casting demons out of a man, healing a woman from a 12-year blood flow disease, and finally raising a little girl from the dead, all just before this, the disciples have to realize that there is something unique about Jesus. And they're about to go from passive bystanders to active participants as the good news of the kingdom of God confronts a broken world. Notice that Jesus called them together and gave them what? In verses 1 and 2. Power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, both things that he has just done. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. We'll look at verses 3 through 5 a little bit later, but jump down to verse 6 quick. It says, They departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So back to our question. How does the good news of the kingdom of God confront a broken world? It's through Jesus' sent out ones who are empowered by him to fulfill the ministry to which he has called them. 
Now we have to read this with chronological care in two ways. First, this is pre-Pentecost. Jesus is still in the middle of his earthly ministry here. He has not been raised from the dead, and the disciples have not been fully commissioned and filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is a foretaste of things to come. Second, this is not prescriptive for the church today. What does that mean? Well, we aren't to read this account and assume that we have power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. I'll come back to that in a minute. So we need to read this carefully in its chronological context, especially as we see the weaknesses and unbelief still present in the disciples, even up until Jesus' resurrection and ascension. But let's zero in on what's going on here. Jesus gives them, or grants to them, as the divine king, power and authority to act on his behalf, to do some of the same powerful works that he has already done. Now I want us also to notice here the relationship between the power and authority to cast out demons and heal, and the power and authority to proclaim the kingdom of God, which says in verse 2, or to preach the gospel in verse 6. Jesus' ministry was never just about magnificent displays of power. It's not power encounters with Jesus that save your soul. Having demons cast out of you or having a physical disease healed does not guarantee the salvation of your soul. Again, don't forget the parable of the sower that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Some hear the word and immediately Satan snatches it away so that they can't believe and be saved. Some hear the word with joy, maybe get healed or delivered from demons, but they have no root and they fall away in time of testing. Others get choked out by the cares of this life. And only the ones in good soil hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. There is no saving of the soul without hearing the proclamation of the kingdom of God, the good news of the gospel, repenting of our sins, and embracing Jesus by faith. Now let me try to prove this from the very end of Luke. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, you'll remember that he meets two of his followers on the road to Emmaus, and he unpacks the Old Testament scriptures and shows how they all pointed to him. Yet they still didn't know who he was until they sit down for a meal and Jesus breaks bread with them and their eyes are opened and they recognize him and then he vanishes. Then these disciples go to Jerusalem to tell the eleven apostles and others who were gathered with them what had happened. And suddenly Jesus appears and scares the daylights out of them all. And listen to what Jesus said to them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead 
and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, same word in Luke 9 two. repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power. Same thing Jesus grants to his disciples here. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is similar to the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. Jesus said, all authority... Again, same word that's used here in Luke 9 two, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the mission that was given to the church to go confront the broken world with the good news of the kingdom of God through the proclamation in his name of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Because we have authority and power to do so through the spirit that he has granted to us. Notice what is missing here from Luke 9. I noticed this in my study of this passage this week, and I think it's helpful in answering a common objection that might be raised. Some people might ask, well, what about casting out demons and healing? Isn't that still a part of the ministry that Jesus granted to his followers? It's certainly interesting that it is absent in Luke 24 and Matthew 28. Some people might point to the ministry of the apostles in the book of Acts and claim that it is still part of what the church is called to do. But here's my pushback against that. What do we see after the book of Acts? Now, I'm not going to give you a bunch of scripture references, but you could go and read the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians to see Paul talking about preaching and the power of God. But I do want to give you a little bit of evidence from my word study. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot some of these things down. In Luke 9, 1-6, there are two different Greek words used for proclaim in verse 2 and preaching the gospel in verse 6. Same idea, two different words used. The word used for proclaim, is used 61 times in the New Testament. 40 of those times are in the Gospels and Acts. 19 times in Paul, the ministry of the church after the book of Acts. So, 40 times in the Gospels and Acts, proclaim. 19 times in Paul, the ministry of the church after the book of Acts, talking about proclaiming or preaching the gospel. The word for preaching the gospel, it's where we get the word evangelize. It's the word in uh, verse 6. Used 54 times in the New Testament. 26 of those times are in the gospels and acts. 
21 times in Paul. So again, after the ministry of the apostles in Acts. So the first word for proclaim, Paul uses 19 times. The second word for preaching, Paul uses 21 times. There are also two different Greek words used for heal in verse 2 and in verse 6, and actually verse 1 as well. The word heal in verse 1 is, the English is cure, but it's the same word that is used in verse 6 for heal. That word is used 43 times in the New Testament. 41 of those occurrences of the 43 are in the Gospels and Acts. Two times in the book of Revelation, referring to the wound of the beast being healed. So you can do the math there. And I'm not talking about uh, doing crazy math in the book of Revelation. I'm saying do the math that 41 times out of 43 are in the gospel and Acts. Two times are in Revelation. That adds up to 43. So that means that zero times in Paul's writings is the word healing, this word for heal even used. The second word for heal that is used in verse 2 is used 26 times in the New Testament. 23 of those times are in the Gospels and Acts. Two of the other three uses are figurative or spiritual. Peter quotes Isaiah 53 and says, By his wounds you have been healed. Clearly not talking about physical healing. The only possible reference to physical healing is in James chapter 5, where he says to confess your sins and pray for one another that you may be healed, which comes after telling the elders to anoint sick people with oil and lay their hands on them. So if you, again, again, if you do that math, in all of Paul's writings to the church, all of the instructions given to Timothy, to Titus, talking to people about ministry in the name of Jesus, in all of those writings, there are zero references to physical healing. Now that might feel like a little bit of a tangent, or that I've got a theological axe to grind. Please hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that I don't believe God can heal people of diseases. I'm not saying that he can't deliver people from demonic oppression. But I am saying that since the book of Acts, in what we might call the post-apostolic era of the church, that the primary way that the kingdom of God advances and that the broken world around us is confronted is through the proclamation of the gospel. And that's not just me preaching a recorded message that you're all listening to right now. It's not just me standing in the pulpit when we're able to gather together again. No, it's all of us working together to make disciples of all nations by preaching the gospel to our friends and neighbors and co-workers. They need the seed of the word to penetrate deep into their hearts, and we need to pray that God has prepared the soil of their hearts to receive his word. They don't need some power encounter or physical healing or exorcism. Well, I just spent way more time on that section than I had 
originally planned to. And there's a lot more that could be said. But let's move on to verses 7 through 9. Here we see that the good news of the kingdom of God confronts those in the highest places. We are reintroduced now to Herod the Tetrarch, who we last saw in chapter 3 when he put John the Baptist in prison. And Herod is a representative of the power of the kingdoms of this world. He is the son of Herod the Great, who was king in Judea at the time of the birth of Jesus. Herod the Great is the one who had all of the boys under two murdered in Bethlehem. And the Herodian dynasty of which Herod was a ruler was in power from 47 BC to 100 AD. Now remember, I said in the beginning that there was something interesting about the Edomites in our passage today. The Herodian dynasty was an Edomite dynasty. They were descendants of Esau. So here you have Jesus, the descendant of Jacob, and Herod, the descendant of Esau, as there is a continued friction between these two ancient kingdoms. But that whole feud really gets turned on its head in the coming of Jesus. Herod is perplexed by what he has heard about Jesus Some are saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And in verse 9, Herod asks the question that really jumps out as the focal point of these passages, and really it's the emphasis of Luke's gospel, and really all four gospels actually. It's answering answering the question, or attempting to, to answer the question, who is Jesus? Notice what Herod says. John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And we're told that he sought to see him. Again, there is a lot more that could be said about this section. Uh, We could look at the possible answers to the question of Jesus' identity as it relates to John the Baptist, or Elijah, or one of the prophets. And James will actually get into that a bit next week, so I'll let him tackle that part. But I don't want to read, uh, but I do uh, want to read for us a section from a book about Luke uh, that James and I have both been using in our sermon series. It's a book by Tim Chester called A Meal with Jesus, Discovering Grace, Community, and Mission Around the Table. It highlights Jesus eating Jesus' eating of meals with people, like the feast at Levi's house in chapter 5, when Jesus is accused of eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And while there's no direct reference to eating here in these three verses about Herod desiring to see Jesus, Chester perceptively sees a connection between these verses and the feeding of the 5,000, which comes directly after it. Notice, I want you to notice as I read this, the contrast between how the good news of the kingdom of God confronts those in the highest places and those in the lowest places. He says, Jesus doesn't fit in our world. He breaks down our categories. He bursts our expectations. His actions do not fit the laws and expectations of this world. 
To judge them by the standards of this world is a category mistake. To judge them by your experience is to miss the point. They don't belong in this world because they give us a glimpse of another world. Jesus' coming was the start of a new world. His actions were a sign of God's coming world. The world we rule over is a world where famine can strike, injustice goes unchecked, war ravages nations, communities fracture, and families divide. Welcome to the kingdom of me and you. Welcome to the kingdom of Herod. Mark puts the story of the feeding of the 5,000 immediately after the story of another party in Mark 6. Herod holds a birthday banquet for himself to impress his nobles. The climax is an erotic dance by his stepdaughter. Then Herod is manipulated into having John the Baptist murdered. Jesus welcomes everyone to his party. The poor are included. Jesus' motivation is compassion. He proclaims good news. And the party ends with everyone satisfied. Herod, in contrast, only welcomes the in-crowd. The poor are excluded. He is motivated by pride and enslaved by his need to save face. Herod's party ends in death. In Luke's Gospel, Mary sees in God's choice of her, despite her humble estate, a sign of what's coming. This is a quote from Luke 1, 52-53. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Chester goes on. Now in this desolate place, the humble and hungry are satisfied while the mighty on their thrones seek Jesus but cannot see him. The miraculous provision of loaves and fish for 5,000 men and doubtless thousands more women and children is one of those accounts that even people casually familiar with the Bible are familiar with. It's in every children's Bible I've ever seen, and it speaks, pun totally intended, to the hunger for something greater than what we see. A hunger and dissatisfaction that every human being faces. A longing to be filled and satisfied with something good. Something that they don't have to strive for. Something they don't deserve, but is nonetheless graciously given to them. Let's take a look at some of those key things here in verses 10 through 17. First, the disciples return from their journey of preaching and healing and casting out demons, and they tell Jesus all about it. I'm guessing that their heads were pretty big by this point. They thought they were hot stuff. So Jesus wants to give them a dose of humble pie. They go to Bethsaida, and a great crowd follows them. I don't know about you, I can't imagine being followed by over 5,000 people. That had to have been a bit frightening. But notice how Jesus responds in verse 11. It says, He welcomed them. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus told the crowds in Matthew 11. Notice here the compassion and the care of our Savior as He welcomes them. 
as he speaks to them about the kingdom of God, and as he cured those who had need of healing. Remember, the disciples had just returned from doing those things. It's like they went out for a bike ride after just learning how to ride, and they came back with some bumps and bruises, and Jesus said, Time to put the training wheels back on for a bit, boys. You're not quite ready to ride on your own. And they weren't. They had gone out at Jesus' command in verse 3, taking nothing for their journey, only the clothes on their back. They had no money and no food. They had to walk by faith and trust God to provide through the generosity and hospitality of other people. But now they're like, Hey Jesus, it's getting late and we don't have any food or any money. You'd better send these people into town so that they don't starve to death. And you have to love what Jesus says here. This is pretty much the twin saying to what we saw in the boat last week when he asked them, where is your faith? He says here, you give them something to eat. And they're like, wait a minute, that's not how this is supposed to work. Isn't it ironic that after being granted the power to preach and heal and cast out demons, after seeing Jesus turn water into wine at a wedding, and after a miraculous catch of fish, of fish, that they either, A, don't think Jesus could feed all of these people, or B, they didn't think that they might now have the power to do this type of miracle. The heading of this third section is, The good news of the kingdom of God confronts those in the lowest places. But it's not just the people who are in the crowd who are in a low place. Jesus has humbled his disciples to a low place in order, I believe, to show them that they are not big shots in the spiritual realm. That they don't have it all figured out because they did some great things for Jesus. What a constant reminder I need as your pastor that it's not about me and what I can do for Jesus. And you need the reminder too. This isn't just a struggle for people in full-time ministry. It's an incredible thing to be used by the Lord in a mighty way in someone's life. It's a joy to be able to speak truth to people and to see God move in their hearts. But we proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. I don't proclaim the good news of the kingdom of Josh. Well, maybe some days I do, but I shouldn't. And you don't proclaim the good news of the kingdom of Andrew or Lacey or Zach. We do not have what it takes to satisfy people's hungry souls. But notice who does. Jesus takes the five loaves and two fish, blesses them, breaks the loaves, and then the disciples distribute them to groups of 50. That's a minimum of 100 groups. This was no small task. It's as, if, it's as if Jesus says, Hey boys, you haven't quite learned the ways of being a servant yet. And they 
go around to each group until we read in verse 17 that they all ate and were satisfied. I love this. Our last Sunday together in person was on March 15th. The sermon text for that day was Luke 6, 12 through 26. We looked at the Beatitudes and the Woes. The first two Beatitudes are strikingly relevant here. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who are hungry now, for what? You shall be satisfied. Whoa! I don't think in the Beatitudes that Jesus was predicting the day when he would multiply loaves and fish and feed 5,000 people. Blessed are you who are poor now, for your eternal inheritance is a kingdom that will never be overthrown. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied in the eternal banquet hall of God where you will feast forevermore. And it is through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone that we get entrance into the kingdom of God and eternal satisfaction at His table. If you're listening to this today and you are not a Christian, it is time to come and be a guest at Jesus' table. He is the host He has spread out a feast before you that is free for the taking. And there are no prices on his menu. This isn't like splitting the cost of a pizza with your roommate or going over to another family's house for dinner and asking them what you can bring to contribute. Nothing. You have nothing. And you don't need to try to bring anything. Come. Eat. Enjoy, be satisfied in Christ alone. And if you are a Christian, I want you to remember what God has done for you in Christ. One way that we would normally do that is by observing the Lord's Supper together, which we have missed for two months now. And we long for the time we can be back together and break bread together. And in the meantime, we have been praying prayers of longing for the Lord's Supper, which we will do again today. But before that, I want to point out one more thing from our passage and close with another quote from Tim Chester's book. The crowds ate and were satisfied. The loaves had to be in the thousands. And we see in that last sentence that What was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Chester writes that while this feeding was not the ultimate satisfaction that Jesus promises those who trust in him, it was a foretaste of the real thing. The 12 baskets of leftovers are a sign that this feast will continue. In this desolate place, As a group of needy people gather together and share food with Jesus at the center and with Jesus as the provider, we see God's coming world glimpsed right here, right now. 
When your church family gathers together as a group of needy people and shares food with Jesus at the center and with Jesus as the provider, you glimpse God's coming world right here, right now. The Christian community is the beginning and sign of God's coming world, and no more so than when we eat together. Our meals are a foretaste of the future messianic banquet. Our meals reveal the identity of Jesus. Our meals are a proclamation and demonstration of God's good news. Well, it is that good news that confronted us when we were dead in sin. It is that good news that gave us new life in Christ It is that good news that we are sent out to proclaim to the broken world around us, from those in the highest places to those in the lowest. And it is the meal of remembrance and celebration that we are missing and longing for. The meal that reminds us and that reminds us and the broken world around us that the King of Heaven took on human flesh, became one of us, had his body broken and his blood poured out on our behalf that we might go free, that we might taste and see that the Lord is good, and that we might be eternally satisfied at the banquet table of our conquering King. Amen. Let us pray the prayer of longing together. For the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, our hearts brim with longing today. We long for one another, for the day when we might gather again as your body around your table of grace. We long for your table spread out for us in this wilderness, where we feast upon the abundance of your house and drink from the river of your delights. We long for you, for your presence that is ours in the supper. It is your body broken and your blood poured out that alone can strengthen our hearts and satisfy our thirst. But until the day of our joyous reunion, teach us to lament this absence in our lives. Teach us to long for you, for your church, for your kingdom, and for the day of your coming again. For on that day you have promised to lead us up the mountain of God, where we will partake with you a banquet of rich foods prepared for all peoples. We pray this in the name of him who is the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation. Amen. done great.
Every vow we've 